Thank you, brothers and sisters. Good morning and welcome. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 1? We're going to be in several texts this morning, but I want to start there. A wonderful day to focus on this aspect of the gospel, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me begin this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are we are thankful, we are excited, we are so amazed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have you have done glorious things. Your plan of redemption is so far above and beyond all that we could ask or think. It's certainly of divine origin. And yet it is perfect and effectual and powerful to save. We are so grateful. Father, lift our hearts to see the clarity and the truth of Your resurrection maybe in some fresh ways this morning and cause our hearts to exult and to be convinced and to be convicted and may the Holy Spirit of God, may He further ground our, our faith in the truth that we may be Spirit-filled witnesses of that truth. And we know, Father, that time is growing short, that the Son is returning soon. And so may we be faithful to the end and receive a crown of life. And may we call others to join us in following Christ. May it all be done by Your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if someone came to you and asked you to prove to them that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, what would you say to them? How would you, how would you go about attempting to give them proofs of the resurrection? Maybe you have a classmate that you've begun talking with at college or high school, and they, they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What would you tell them? A co-worker, maybe a family member, a neighbor. How would you go about seeking to convince someone that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? And certainly we know as believers, having studied the Scriptures together, that if you take the resurrection away, everything else falls away. Like the Apostle Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, our faith is in vain, all of Christianity unravels. It's the keystone doctrine that holds everything together. Last year on Resurrection Sunday, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. That'd be a great place to go to take someone to teach them about proofs of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul gives Spirit-inspired, powerful arguments to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and consequently to the truth of the resurrection of people by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this year, I'd like to share with you seven more proofs that the Word of God gives to us for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you're already turned here to Acts chapter 1, and I'll ask you to stand with me one more time. Let's read this text together, the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, and I'll draw your attention to some of the verses here, and then we'll continue. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, He said, you heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Amen. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 3 and how it says for us here that Jesus presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days after His suffering, He presented Himself and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus gave His disciples many proofs of His resurrection. Jesus, by all that He demonstrated and taught to His disciples during those 40 days, was preparing them to be faithful witnesses in the world of His resurrection and the truths of the Gospel. He filled them with His Spirit. Remember, He says there later on, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world or to the end of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. That's why you and I have heard the Gospel of the Resurrection today. It, it has come to the uttermost part, the end of the world. And so, one thing I ask myself as I look at this verse is what, what are some of those proofs? What proofs could the disciples see? What proofs did Jesus underscore with His disciples as He demonstrated to them His resurrection and appeared to them during 40 days? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning seven proofs for Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. And my main point is very simple. Christ has been raised bodily from the dead. Let's consider some of these proofs together. And your outline that I've given you in the bulletin has these listed. Here's the seven proofs that I want to go through this morning. First, the empty tomb. Second, the bribed guards. Third, the grave clothes. Fourth, the first witnesses. Five, post-resurrection appearances, six, the changed disciples, and seven, the Holy Spirit Himself. Let's look at these one by one. And we're going to look at several texts this morning. Number one, the empty tomb. As we read already, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter or Matthew 28, and we'll look at a few verses there together. We're going to hear lots of page turning this morning. Matthew 28. Verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And Jesus came, and they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. 
Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11, While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people His disciples came by night and stole Him away while He were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is one example of how through the Gospels you see evidence of an empty tomb. You can see the similar story worked out. Luke 24, 1-12, and certainly John 20, 1 through 10. How many saw that the tomb was empty? The angels said the tomb was empty. He is not here. The women who came to the tomb early in the morning saw that the tomb was empty. Peter and John saw that the tomb was empty. According to John 20, Peter and John were the first two disciples to run to the tomb and see it was not filled with Christ's body. Peter and John, the guards even. Did you notice that? The guards in chapter 28, verse 11, they came and told their story to the chief priests. The guards reported the tomb is empty. His body is not there. And then even the enemies of Christ, the religious leaders believed the tomb was empty. It is indisputable on all parties that the tomb is empty. Because they wouldn't have taken action to promote a story explaining the explanation for the empty tomb if the tomb wasn't empty. So angels, women, Peter and John, the guards, even the religious leaders who crucified Jesus, they all agree at the fact that the tomb is indeed empty. No one involved with the details of Christ's death and the burial believed that He was still in the garden tomb prepared by Joseph of Arimathea. Everyone knew it was empty. Which then leads us to our second proof this morning. Alright, we believe the tomb was empty. That's clear. Proof one. But secondly, what's your explanation for the empty tomb then? Is it that He was raised from the dead or is there something else that explains the empty tomb? Well again, you're here in Matthew 28. And I just want to read again for you verses 11-15. through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The guards went to the chief priests, right? Those who orchestrated the death, crucifixion of Christ. And notice what it says there. Slow down a little bit here. They told them their story. The Roman guards positioned there by order of their commanding officers, told them their story. What was their story? What must have been included in their story? Well, the very thing that happened in verses 2-4. through Look at it again. Behold, there was an earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and His clothing white as snow. And what did those guards experience? And for fear of Him... Right, So the guards saw this. They experienced the earthquake. They saw the stone rolled away. They saw the angels. For fear of Him, the guards trembled and passed out. They came like dead men. The guards must have felt the earthquake. They must have seen the angel of the Lord roll back the stone from the mouth of the tomb. They certainly saw the angel Himself with an appearance bright as lightning and white as snow. And that was about all they could handle. They fell like dead men. And when they woke up, what did they see? An empty tomb. Because that's how the story got to the chief priests. They woke up and saw the empty tomb. And when they went, it says in verse 11 there that they reported all. Do you see that little word all there? They reported all that had taken place. It's fact. It's what they reported. 
So the guards must have relayed the true story of the empty tomb to the chief priests in exact events that they had experienced. So undoubtedly, as the chief priests heard that story, they're like, nope, that story is not going to get around. That's not the story we want everybody to hear. Because they would be in deep trouble with the people. The guards' story would have demonstrated that they were wrong about Jesus and that Jesus was speaking the truth all along. So they did what many crooked politicians have done to hide the truth. What did they do? They bribed the hearers of the truth, the bearers of the truth, and compelled them to spread a lie. It's classic. They were paid to say that Jesus' body was stolen by His disciples. When's the last time you hear people that are paid to tell the truth? No, you pay people to keep the truth hidden and to spread a lie. And the chief priests also said, we're prepared to make sure that you guys don't get in trouble. We'll take care of the governor. The religious leaders were used to manipulating the, the, the Roman officials around them. They were good at it. That's how Christ became crucified. And of course, God was sovereign over that. And so they were prepared to manipulate the governor to make sure that he wouldn't blow their cover story. Verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the way that the Roman guards and the chief priests responded to the empty tomb proves that the tomb, that the empty tomb indicates that Jesus is truly bodily risen from the dead. We have an empty tomb. We have bribed guards. A third proof of Christ's resurrection that I want to suggest to you today has something to do with what Jesus left in the tomb. Number three, the grave clothes. Would you turn with me to John chapter 20? Please notice with me in John 20, verses 6 and 7. Actually, let me, let me take you back just a bit to verse 5. So we have Peter and John running to the tomb. They reach the tomb first in verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him. I'm sorry, John. John came sawing, saw the, the, the claws lying there. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And what happened? He saw and he believed. What? So, so, so John just comes in there and he sees the clothes left behind. And when he saw the clothes, it convinced him. He believed. What about grave clothes could, could convince John, the, the writer of this Gospel, that Christ had risen? Well, think about it for a moment. If Jesus' dead body had still been in the tomb, then obviously the grave clothes would still have been wrapped around His body. And you'd see a body. But this shows us, if you look at John 19, 38-42, it shows us that Jesus' body had been embalmed in the Jewish tradition and heavily spiced for burial. Remember that section? Look at verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
So you can see there that this, this is a pretty serious embalming process. 75 pounds worth of spices wrapped in cloths around the body of Jesus. This is, this is serious. This is the Jewish tradition of embalming. And the text tells us also that the tomb where they laid Jesus' body was a new tomb. Look back at the verses there in 19. Now in the place, verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That's important for this, for this proof. It's significant because no other embalmed body had ever been laid in that tomb. And that means that anything that may have been left in the tomb could only be associated with Jesus' burial and no other burial. So brand new tomb, only Jesus' body. Whatever left behind has to do with Jesus. So when the people looked into the tomb, they didn't see a body. They didn't see nothing. They saw grave clothes. They saw Jesus' grave clothes. Only could have been His. If the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb, they certainly would not have had the time or taken the time to unwrap his body with 75 pounds of spices and however, however thickness of, 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 of the, 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 the clothes were involved there, and, and then carefully fold the faith cloth and set it aside, that wouldn't have been the pattern for a grave robbery, especially with Roman guard outside. Someone might suggest, well, the disciples probably came up behind the soldiers and knocked them unconscious and, and then would have given to them ample time for the to, to get into the tomb and, and make it look like there had been a resurrection by setting the grave closed as they were found. But again, that was not the story that the soldiers told. The guards themselves told that they reported the event of the earthquake and the angels and, and so on. Not being knocked unconscious and then we don't know what happened. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, He left His grave clothes behind in such a way that it would be clear that He had risen from the dead. Not that His body had been stolen. If His body had been stolen, it would have been all gone. Let's get this thing out as quick as possible. But Jesus left His grave clothes lying there and Jesus folded the face cloth which had been wrapped around His head and placed it in a place by Himself. This is a powerful indicator of what actually happened. and That's why John writes, he said when he saw those clothes, he saw and believed. Let me read you this quote from D.A. Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John. It's fantastic. He says, What seems clearest is the contrast with the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus came from the tomb wearing his grave clothes. The additional burial clothes still wrapped around his head. Jesus' resurrection bodily uh, Jesus' resurrection body apparently passed through his grave clothes, spices and all, in much the same way that he later appeared in a locked room, you'll notice in verses 19 and 26 of the same chapter. The description of the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head does not suggest that it still retained the shape of the corpse, but that it had been neatly rolled up and set to one side by the one who no longer had any use for it. The description is powerful and vivid. Not the sort of thing that would have been dreamed up. And the fact that two men saw it, verse 8, makes their evidence admissible in a Jewish court according to Deuteronomy 19.15. The grave clothes, left as they were, are a proof of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Empty tomb, bribed guards, grave clothes. Number four this morning. The first witnesses. Who were the very first people to witness and testify to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, let me show you. Again, notice Matthew 28. Actually, you're already in John 20. Let me show you there first. John 20, verse 1. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away, or saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. We've been looking at Matthew 28. Let's look at Mark 16. Let's just turn back to Mark 16. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And then verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they, those ladies who came, went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The Gospel of Luke points not only to Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome, but also to Joanna and Mary the mother of James. So God orchestrated the events of the morning of Christ's resurrection so that at least Four or so women followers, a handful of women, women followers of Jesus were the first people to witness the empty tomb and testify about it to others. Now, that's not, that's not as significant in our day as it is in Jesus' day. Because in our day, women are a viable witness in a court of law, just as men are. But not in Jesus' day. It's a very different culture in Jesus' day. In the Roman world that Jesus was accustomed to, women were not allowed to give an eyewitness court, uh, a testimony in court. The witness of a woman to the truthfulness or falseness of an account was not valid. So if the disciples, here's the point, if the disciples were interested in concocting a myth about the resurrection of Jesus to deceive people and to gain some sort of power over them in order to forward a personal agenda they would not have reported women as the first eyewitnesses. That would have been very counterproductive to their purposes. Instead, they would have left the eyewitness of the women out of it entirely and put together a mythical account that would have been appealing to the cultural expectations of their day. That's what deceivers do. So this kind of apparently counterproductive and countercultural irony that's reported all throughout the Gospels because Jesus had many women following Him as part of His disciples, which the church would then become like. And what we see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts is that following all that irony, that countercultural irony, we see an explosive progress of the Gospel and an explosive expansion of the church throughout the known world. All of that proves what? that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a man-made mythical story, but a divine reality. It's fact. It's true. Jesus Christ is risen bodily from the dead. We have the proof of the empty tomb, the bribed guards, the grave clothes, the first witnesses. Number five this morning, a fifth proof would be the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Many people saw Jesus after He was raised from the dead in His resurrected, physical, immortal body. Let me show you. Look back at Matthew chapter 28. In verse 9. 
Matthew 28, verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. So there was a clear physical encounter that He had in His appearance to the women here. They even took hold of His feet as a body and worshipped Him. Look at verse 17, the same chapter. This is where He met His disciples and they saw Him and they worshipped Him. But even there, some doubted. Turn over to Luke 24. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is a post-resurrection appearance. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Look at verse 36. And they were talking about these things when those two on the road to Emmaus came and told the others. They were talking about these things among themselves. And, 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 and He appeared. He stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself? Touch me and see for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus still had his crucifixion scars. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you here anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus, here this text shows us that He appeared again to the two on the road to, to the Emmaus. And then He appeared again in the midst of the eleven as those two disciples were, were relaying what they had experienced. Jesus appeared showing them His body, including the scars. He let them touch Him. He ate with them. He taught them. Turn to John 20, verse 18. The end of the Gospel of John is heavy with post-resurrection appearances. One after the other. To several different people. Or different situations. Different times. John 20, verse 18. And so we see here, we already read this. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that they... And, and that He had said these things to her. Verse 19-23, through 23, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then His encounter with Thomas. You can see in verse 26, eight days later, His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 21 gives us yet another account of Jesus revealing Himself to His disciples and there He prepared and ate again a meal with them. 
in Acts 1, 3-11, as we read at the beginning, uh, that tells us that Jesus appeared to His disciples during 40 days. He appeared over the course of 40 days and stayed with them to teach them more of what they needed to know to become His faithful, faithful witnesses. Turn with me to one last text that talks about appearances. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul is relaying to his readers the many appearances of Jesus. In verse 5, it says, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of the writing of First Corinthians, though some have fallen asleep. That's a a Christian way of talking about death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this text declares Jesus appeared to Peter, then the twelve, then five hundred brothers at one time, and then Paul himself. So the post resurrection appearances of Jesus were not few and far between. They were many. Jesus did not appear for just a day or two after His resurrection and then was never seen after that. His appearances happened over the course of 40 days. His appearances were not just to a few folks in private. They included an appearance to over 500 people at one time. That would be a massive hallucination. No, that was reality. Jesus bodily resurrected. Christ's appearances were not just reported after those who saw Him had already passed away, but while the first-hand witnesses were still living and could verify that report firsthand. And the appearances of Christ were not phantom-like. He, he stayed with His disciples. He ate with them. He was touched by them. He, he taught them. Yes, he, he disappeared from their sight, but when He was there, He was a body. Christ still has a resurrected, immortal body to this day. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ are a powerful proof of His bodily resurrection. A sixth proof is found in the changed disciples. Number six, the changed disciples. I think it's very important for us to remember who the disciples were before Jesus' death and resurrection. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, they were somewhat deluded by a false, nationalistic, temporal view of salvation. Like most of the Jewish people, the disciples thought and anticipated that when the Messiah came, He would release Israel from the tyranny of Rome. He would raise Israel to a place of power and glory over the whole earth, certainly over Rome. That He would give Israel health and wealth and earthly prosperity. That's why the, the Jews were... were were seeking after Jesus, especially when He did miracles like feeding the 5,000. They were about to make Him king. Who wouldn't want a king that could take five loaves and two fish and feed 20,000 people with them? It would be a great welfare system. And some of Jesus' disciples even asked Him if they could be His right hand and left hand men when He would, come about, when he would bring about the, the conquest of His earthly kingdom, which of course made the other disciples envious and angry, and it probably even made them a little more envious when those two disciples sent their mom to ask Jesus if they could sit on His right hand and left hand. Left hand. However, when the disciples realized that what Jesus said to them so often about His suffering and death was happening right in front of their eyes, all of their delusions about quickly rising to earthly power and wealth with Jesus collapsed in despair. Jesus had told them multiple times throughout His, his time with them, I, the Scriptures say, I'm here to suffer and to die and to rise again. And it's just kind of, they were just kind of like, yeah, you know, just going about their own ideas about things. Peter even said, Jesus, no, you're not going to die. If anyone's going to die, it's going to be me. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. 
You don't understand the plans of God. They didn't understand yet all the significance of what Jesus was doing through His suffering and burial and death. He didn't understand what Jesus had to do to save His people from their sins and from the wrath of God. You see, if there was no cross, there would be no kingdom of God full of redeemed people. And so after the death of Jesus, these men were fearful. They were doubtful. They were skeptical. They were discouraged. They were through. And the texts of Scripture are numerous to show us this. For example, Matthew 26.56 tells us that when He was arrested there, that in, the, in the garden where He was praying, that all of the disciples what left Him and fled. Matthew 26.69-75 tells us that Peter denied Jesus three times and went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 27, 3-10 tell us that after betraying Him and then thinking a little bit more carefully about what He had done, that Judas went out and hanged himself. Matthew 27, 32 tells us that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross and that makes us wonder, where were His disciples? Matthew 28, 17 tells us that even at the ascension of Jesus, some still doubted. Luke 24.11 tells us that the report of the women about the empty tomb was like an idle tale to the disciples. These little phrases are just so depictive of the disciples' disastrous attitude and mindset after the cross. Luke 24 37 to 38 tell us that the disciples were startled, frightened, and doubtful when Jesus appeared to them. John 19, 25 and 26 seem to indicate that the only disciples at the foot of Jesus' cross where he was being crucified was John, Jesus' mother, Jesus' aunt, Mary Magdalene, and another Mary. And again, we ask, where are the other ten? John 19, 38-42, along with the other Gospel accounts, tell us that it was Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and some of the women who took Jesus' lifeless body from the cross and buried Him. Not His eleven closest disciples. You would think that that's what they would want to do. But they were gone. They were through. John 20, 24, and 25 show us the skepticism and deep doubt of Thomas. I won't believe. I will not believe unless I put my finger in, in the nail scars and my hand in his side. I am, I am done. I am not going through this again. John 21, 1-3 shows us the discouragement of, of at least seven of the disciples because they decided to go back what they did before they met Jesus. They went fishing. The disciples were fearful, doubtful, skeptical, discouraged. They were through. So what happened? What happened? Why didn't Christianity fizzle out the moment it got going? What's the answer to this? Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That is the answer to that question. Why the disciples were so changed. That's the only explanation for the massive change that occurred among the disciples. Jesus proved His resurrection to His disciples and prepared them for the founding and expanding of the church. He ascended and He sent His Spirit to live in them so that they could be rock solid in their confidence of His resurrection and have the power that they needed to witness to the world that this Christ is risen and He's alive and He's coming again. So those men changed from being fearful and doubtful and skeptical and discouraged to turning the world upside down with the message of the resurrected Christ. And the book of Acts is filled with them preaching, He is risen. And the Scriptures are fulfilled. 
And they didn't, they didn't become wealthy in doing so. You can just take that motivation for their change right off the table. In fact, they faced great suffering and were even martyred while witnessing to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they did so in joy for love of their risen Savior. They considered themselves blessed to be cut and worthy to suffer for His sake. In fact, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 30 and 31, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What's Paul saying? Why would they live on the edge of death daily? Why would they do that? Because Christ is risen and they saw Him and they touched Him and they believed. And so they were, they were all in to proclaim His message in the world, even if it cost them their life. The Apostle Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why did Peter and the disciples think like that? Why did they live like that when they thought so differently before? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the answer. The resurrection is proven by the dramatic change in the disciples. And Peter says that exactly in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The change in the disciples came about when their fear, their doubt, their skepticism and discouragement was replaced by a living hope. And that living hope was born in them by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the change in the disciples proves the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. A seventh and final proof this morning of Christ's resurrection, which we really have already alluded to, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is the greatest one of all. The Holy Spirit. First, here's the question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, the Scriptures tell us that all three persons of the Trinity raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus raised Himself from the dead. That's in the Scriptures. God the Father raised Him from the dead. But the Scriptures also teach us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... Did you hear that? <laughs> the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. But secondly, notice this, the One who raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of God also inspired the Scriptures and filled it with eyewitness report and clear testaments of Christ's resurrection. The Holy Spirit, the One who raised Christ, inspired the unified, undisputed eyewitness accounts of Christ's resurrection. The Apostle Peter teaches this very, very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter is arguing the fact. Second Peter, actually, Second Peter, chapter one. If I if I didn't say that, Second Peter one. The Apostle Peter is arguing where did they get their gospel account of all of this, and he says we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. It wasn't a myth. We were eyewitnesses. Well, well, then who was it that guided the minds of the apostles to write down that eyewitness account accurately? Peter answers that. And he says in verse 20, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, their own ability to take it an eyewitness account and get it down on paper correctly. No, that's not what happened. Here's what happened. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of, of, of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead also inspired the accounts of Christ's resurrection just the way He did it. The Holy Spirit inspired the, the undeniable statements of resurrection doctrine throughout the New Testament. And finally, the Holy Spirit was sent from the risen Christ to convict sinners and convince believers of Christ's resurrection. Listen, the one who raised Christ from the dead and the one who authored the gospel accounts of Christ's resurrection is also the one whose power accompanies the proclamation of the gospel of Christ's resurrection and convicts sinners and convinces believers of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. The Spirit of God convinces of Christ's resurrection today. In your heart. The one who raised Christ, the one who authored this book, he's the one who accompanies the word and convinces you. This is exactly what the scriptures teach. First Corinthians 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul speaking, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Who raised Christ? The Holy Spirit. Who authored the Scriptures that prophesied and explains the resurrection? The Holy Spirit. Who convinces believers Today, that Christ is raised when the Word is preached. The Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-10 says the same thing. Different church, same author. Paul speaks to the Thessalonian church. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you. How did they know they were chosen for salvation? Because our Gospel came to you not only in words. It didn't just come out of my mouth and hit against your eardrums and fall to the ground useless. No, this Word also came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then in verse 6, Paul writes, for you received the Word. The Word of the Gospel. Death, burial, resurrection. They received it. Even in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, Paul writes, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who is the ultimate proof of the resurrection? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate proof. If He does not convince a person in their heart through the Scriptures that Christ is raised from the dead, they will not believe. No mountain of evidential proofs will be effective to convince that person upon the whom the Holy Spirit is not working. But if He intends to convict them and convince them, nothing can stop them from believing the truth that Jesus Christ has been raised bodily from the dead. And all of the proofs that the Holy Spirit has laid out for us in the Scriptures will cause their faith to be steadfast, immovable, and rock solid. You see, Jesus Christ is risen bodily from the dead and He is alive forevermore and will return to bring His people to His Father's house and to enjoy His glory and be where He is. So do you believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe this? Are you convinced? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the bodily resurrection is an essential aspect of the Gospel which must be embraced in order for a sinner to be justified before God. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not justified before God. 
Why is it so important? Well, again, Paul explains. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Paul writes in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Dear friend, maybe today is the first day you've been hearing about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you're not yet justified before God. You're still in your sins. You still love your sins. The wrath of God still abides upon you. That's the condition of everyone apart from Jesus Christ. Think of the proof that the Spirit of God has given to you today for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let that move you into a confidence of all of Christ's life. That He lived a perfect life to clothe you in His righteousness if you'll receive it and refuse your own self-righteousness. That He died on the cross to take your guilt off of your soul, off of your shoulders and put them on Himself. Yes, He became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Him. That's salvation. That's justification. You can't, you can't stand before God in your own righteousness. You can't stand before God in your sin. He will see it and judge you rightly. But because of Christ, you can be set free from the punishment of sin, from the power of sin, and someday even from the presence of sin. And Christ rose from the dead to give you new life that lasts forever. Right now, you can have eternal life if you turn away from sin, away from self-righteousness, and set your confidence entirely upon Jesus Christ. He is faithful. You will not be ashamed. You will not be disappointed. He saves all who come to Him in faith. Let the truth of the resurrection convince you. Let the Spirit of God speak to you through the Scriptures. Receive this by faith. And, and this is my desire for us who are already convinced of these resurrection truths and the truths of the Gospel. May the Lord enable us, as He did His disciples, to continue to be steadfast in these truths. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it is going to become more difficult to be clear in our doctrine in the days ahead. And you will be tempted to deny the most foundational truths of the Gospel. And it's not going to be a cakewalk anymore. It will be the way it was for the disciples. And you may even be tempted to deny Christ as Peter did. And you will certainly, if the Lord wills, remain faithful by the Holy Spirit but we need to grow in our faith together. And this is how we do it, by opening the Word and being convinced again and again of the truths of the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may the Holy Spirit fill you with His power so that you may be faithful in your witness, in your homes to your children. Your children need to be convinced of these things. Don't leave off explaining in depth with the open book the truths of the Gospel to your children in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your communities, testify in love to others that Jesus Christ is alive. Because people need living hope. They are done with getting hope that fizzles out and means nothing. But this is not that kind of hope. This is a living hope. Jesus Christ has risen bodily from the dead and He's coming back soon. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together and give thanks to our Savior. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I'm so glad that the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead and inspired the Scriptures is still speaking today through this living and abiding Word. And so convince our hearts afresh today if there is someone here today that has not yet placed their faith and confidence in Christ alone for salvation, Draw them, Father. Please draw them. Teach them to come to the Son in a way that only You can teach.
We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.